We have four passages of Scripture to read this morning. First are passages from Psalm 16 and 17, then from 1 Thessalonians 4, and then from Isaiah 57. First in Psalm 16, the verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then in Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And now in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I begin to read in verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, or the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And please turn now to Isaiah chapter 57. I'll read the entirety of the chapter. And the text for this morning's sermon will be verses 1 and 2. Just a word of explanation before I begin to read. I'm reading the entire chapter because there are beautiful gospel jewels displayed here, but they are displayed against a dark backdrop of the sin of the nation of Israel. And God equates idolatry with adultery, with someone who's been unfaithful in a marriage to help us to understand this is God's perspective on the sin of the people. And there are beautiful and lovely things for us here in the midst of this dark chapter. Hear the word of God in Isaiah 57 at verse 1. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock, rocks, Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these, 
On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say, there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and, and not remembered me? nor taken it to your heart. Is it not because I held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And one shall say, keep it up, keep it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me, and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. And he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace. Peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Our confessions help us as we are confronted by death. And so I'm going to read in the Heidelberg Catechism, Question and answer one, and question and answer 45. Question one asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And question 45 asks, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death.
so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. May the Lord minister comfort through these readings for his glory and your good. Dear congregation, have you ever considered how little we would know about death if we didn't have God's word? Even in our day, when people often go to hospitals or old age homes and they die there, still all of us, young and old, are confronted by the reality of death. Even if you have never seen another person die or been present when that happened, you may have been impacted by death. Children, maybe some of your grandparents died even before you were born or when you were very young. You know that there should be four of them, four grandparents, two from your mom's side of the family and two from your dad's side of the family. So if you have less than four grandparents who are alive now, it means that one or more of them has died. Two of my grandparents died before I was born. I have a vague memory of my grandfather's voice. He died when I was either three or four. And my grandmother died during my early teen years. A sermon about death is most relevant because if Jesus doesn't return within the next hundred years or so, all of us will be dead. We all, you and I, will die. In the providence of God, three of our members have died in a very short period of time. And as we live with recent loss, and we process the pain and the grief of the deaths of others we have lost, God has not left us alone. He's given us his word as we deal with the loss of loved ones and the certainty of our own deaths. God's words about death are helpful when we think about the death of Christians. Yes, Jesus came and he took the sting out of death. No longer is death a punishment for sin. Now, for all who believe in Jesus, death is a passage to eternal glory. All these things are true, and praise God it is so. And they are reasons for comfort. But still, it is true that Christians die. Sometimes death comes slowly. Sometimes the process of dying robs a person of dignity. Then he dies. She dies. He is gone, and you remain. And it hurts and you grieve. And maybe you ask why sometimes. Sometimes people die suddenly, and that brings its own sharp pain. I still remember an elderly man I had a close relationship to. I remember him standing behind me in church, and he put his hand on my shoulder. And some days later, I got a call from a friend who asked me if I knew that this man had suffered a heart attack and died. And I didn't know. And I remember what a shock and a pain it was. Dear ones, my thought in telling about my experiences and my purpose is to say that you have your own experiences and sorrows, and they matter. They matter to God, and they matter to me, and they matter to us all. And this is the place where we can hear each other, we can listen, and we can show that we care in a way 
that the best of worldly people cannot do. Society offers no help. Unbelievers in the world cover their fear of death with laughter and breezy or crude language. I will never forget a college class in philosophy that I took, and there was a woman who had been raised in the church, and she left the church, and she expressed her worry that she would die and go to hell, as she heard when she was younger. And many people in the class laughed. Literature is no help. Think of the poem, well-known poem, in Flanders Fields, where we read, We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw a sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. That's a familiar poem. But did you know there was a poem immediately after it in the collection of John McRae's writings called The Anxious Dead? And the author asks the guns to let the dead know that the living will fight on that they will win the battle and finish the work and the war that the dead have started. But that isn't God's word, and it doesn't help. There are false teachings about death in society. There are popular sayings about the dead turning over in their graves, or Peter at the pearly gates deciding whether people can or cannot enter heaven. That is not what Jesus meant when he gave the keys of the kingdom to the apostles. We've received better and true teaching, that the keys of the kingdom are the preaching of the word of God and the proper lawful exercise of church discipline. There is so much false hope in this world. The words, he is in a better place, can be said. And Christians can and do comfort one another with this truth. But it's possible that unbelievers say it about unbelievers for no reason other than they prefer to think of the dead as going to a happier place with no reference to Jesus, the way into heaven, and with no reference to the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yet in their moments of honesty, all kinds of people need to deal with the reality and the certainty and the inevitability of death. Bertrand Russell was a famous 20th century philosopher, and a very wicked man, and an atheist who said, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. That is the best people without God can do. Dear ones, God doesn't tell us everything we want to know. But in his word, he tells us everything we need to know. This is also true as we consider the death of God's people. And so the text before us this morning is Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. And there we read, The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. And so I ask you to consider God's word with me under the theme, God Speaks through the death of the righteous. And we'll consider two main thoughts here. First, the text gives us reason to rejoice for the dead. And secondly, the text gives us reason to mourn the survivors. 
Before we get into the text, let's consider Isaiah's time. It will help us to understand so much better as to what was going on. Isaiah was a prophet who lived in Judah, the small southern kingdom. He had a long ministry, roughly 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And during his ministry, Assyria came and took the ten northern tribes into captivity. Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrians at one time, but they did not capture the city. An angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Though Israel, the northern tribe, was taken and Judah remained, Judah was a largely wicked, godless society by that time. A majority of the people were religious because it was part of their culture, not because they feared the Lord. In verse 3, immediately after the text, God speaks of them as sons of the sorceress, and he condemns them for their idolatry. They are like a a spouse in a marriage who has broken the marriage and gone to other lovers. And in verse 5, the Lord accuses them of killing their children and sacrificing them to idols. Remember that human sacrifice is an abomination to God. Boys and girls, abomination means that child sacrifice is a sin that God hates very much. And so as we think about Israelite society in the times of Isaiah, there are very few righteous people in that culture, very few who serve the Lord, and they are dying. The godly are dying off, and no one is paying attention. That's the background to this text. There's one last thing that we should see before we get to the text. Not only the text, but its background is most relevant to us. Isn't it true that we live in an apostate society? Or I should say in a society that has, has turned from the Lord, turned its back on God and his word. Unlike Israel, Christianity is not even part of Canadian culture. If a suitable one-syllable word could be found to replace God in the national anthem, how many people would notice? How many people would complain? We at Cornerstone URC in Edmonton are ignored by our country. Society has its use for the church when there's an election and a place for polling stations is needed, or when there's a blood drive and a location is needed, or when there's an emergency of some kind. This past Wednesday, our city council made it clear that it wants faith-based organizations to help the the homeless, to keep on doing that work, but they don't want them to read the Bible or engage in religious activities that might distress some people because of negative past experiences. Our society is full of idols and idol worshippers. When a person stops giving God glory and worshipping him, he or she immediately becomes an idolater. When God is not glorified, marriage, property, and life are not respected. Isn't that a picture of our society today? This look at the context of the text ought to make us cry out to God for our country. We have forgotten the name of our God, and unto an idol our hands spread abroad. Will not the Almighty uncover this sin? He knows all our hearts and the secrets within. And so are you praying, rise, help, and redeem us, O Lord. 
from Isaiah 57, 1 and 2, we'll consider how God speaks to an apostate culture through the death of the righteous. And firstly, we notice that the text calls us to rejoice for the dead. Who are the people who have died? The first part of the verse tells us the righteous perishes. It's very important for us to see that God is describing people who are in relationship with himself. The word righteous is found 248 times in the Bible. And it's one of those words like goodness that we need to know what it means. And so righteous means conformity to God's law. God describes righteousness as the opposite of wickedness. I can give you some references and you can write them down for further study or confirmation. First, Deuteronomy 25.1 says that judges must justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. So the judge in this case sees a man who is living according to God's law. And he, clear, he declares that person to be righteous. We're not talking about the way of salvation here, much less salvation by works. Rather, we're talking about a person who's living a moral life, who's not guilty of a particular crime with which he's been charged. And Psalm 1 verse 6 makes a clear contrast between the righteous and the wicked or ungodly. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Even the Old Testament is clear that none of us can save ourselves by our righteousness. We are imperfect, sinful people before a God who is perfect, holy, and righteous. God always does what is right, what is according to his law, but we never do anything that is right and pure that flows from our fallen human nature. By nature, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. That's what Isaiah 64, 6 says. That's a good reference to remember when you talk to people about their need for salvation. By nature, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. But God has provided a solution to our horrible lack of righteousness. And we read of it very simply in Isaiah 54, 17, where the Lord says, Their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Their righteousness is from me. All this to say, the Old Testament saints depended on God alone for their right standing before him. They knew that they could not live according to God's law. God never intended that we earn our salvation by keeping his law. He gave his law to keep us from sin and harming ourselves and others. By living according to his law, the righteous live in thankfulness and obedience, and they bring glory to God's name by doing so. Saving righteousness comes from God alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. The Old Testament saints, these righteous who are perishing or dying, were saved in the same way as we are. To be sure, they knew less than we do, but they were saved by the same Savior. As we consider who are dying, we see that not only are they described as righteous, but they have a special relationship to God. We read, merciful men are taken away. Merciful men are taken away. Here we have a special Hebrew word that describes actions and commitment based on a covenant relationship. 
This word has been uh, translated as loyal love, unfailing love, kindness, and devotion. Since Isaiah speaks of people who are righteous because of their connection to God by faith, we should see these people as objects of God's covenantal love and mercy. God has made a covenant with them, not just when they believed, but when they were conceived. He promised to be their God and to work in them so that they would truly be his people. These men and women, boys and girls of the covenant, began to learn that they had no righteousness of their own. They learned that they were sinners, and they learned that the God who came with the promise of the covenant called them to come to him, to trust in him for salvation. And it was only after they came and trusted in this God of the covenant that they realized that he was at work in them all the while. He gave each of them a new heart. He wrote his law in that new heart. And he worked so that he was their God and they were his people. These are the people that Isaiah is describing, congregation. They share in God's righteousness and they know God's covenantal love and faithfulness. To be sure, being objects of God's mercy will result in more and more being merciful to others. Merciful people necessarily will extend mercy and love, kindness and compassion to others. Such people do their utmost to be loyal and to keep their promises. This is glorifying to God and it will profoundly impact the lives of others for good as a gospel witness. God's people live and they die. The righteous perishes, and merciful men are taken away. In some paraphrases, it's uh, described as the wicked are murdering the righteous, but that's not the meaning of the text. There's, there's no evidence for that here. The righteous are not being murdered, nor are they particularly being targeted in distinction from others. When Isaiah says that the righteous perish, his meaning is that the death of the righteous in some ways looks the same as that of the wicked. They all perish. It means their physical lives come to an end. The just man perishes and the merciful man is taken away. Notice, please, the language that God uses to describe death here. The righteous are gathered by God. In one sense, there's no such thing as death and it doesn't have a cold hand. If we look at the events of the text, they are clear to God and they are described from God's perspective. Though the righteous perish, though their bodies die in war or through disease or accidents or old age, they perish in the time and in the manner that God has decreed. Though this text says that merciful men are taken away, it could be translated merciful men are gathered. Do you see the difference? Instead of being taken by an impersonal, impersonal force called death, God's children are gathered by their loving Heavenly Father. As God told Josiah in 2 Kings twenty two twenty, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Let me give you a historical example that might make this clearer. During the Second World War, some 3,500,000 people, mostly children, were evacuated from large cities in England. 
cities like London and Bristol. And they went to live with relatives or even with strangers out in the country. Imagine at the end of the war, the parents would come to collect their children. If their relatives had grown, grown close to them, they might say upon this occasion, the children who stayed with us, who we, we've grown to love, are going to be taken away. But the parents would say, we went to the country to gather our children together and to bring them home. And it's the latter picture that we see in the text. Death doesn't take anyone away. God comes to gather his children and to bring them home to live with him forever. We're told in the text that the righteous are taken away, are gathered in order to be spared from evil at the end of verse 1. The righteous is taken away from evil. We ought to view this part of the text as widely as possible. What I mean is that through their deaths, God delivers his people from past evil, present evil, and future evil. Think for a moment about being delivered from past evil. Though God forgives the sins of every sinner who believes on Christ, God does not change the past. Past sins have consequences, whether it's your sin or someone else's sin against you. But through death, God delivers his people from past evil. We're told in Revelation that God wipes the tears from the eyes of his children. Remember, Christian, that you are going to a land where there will be no sorrow or pain. Secondly, God takes believers away from present evil. They're delivered from evil people. As the world becomes more worldly, more wicked and godless, we should not be surprised if the world hates us too. Jesus Christ went about doing good, and the world crucified him. Cain hated Abel and killed him because Abel's sanctified life reminded Cain of God's law and his own wicked heart. For Christians in nations like North Korea, death is God's way of escape from present evil. Have you ever thought of martyrdom as God's way of escape from evil for his dear children? Even if it is a very painful way sometimes. Think of the death of the thief on the cross who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. For him, his death was a deliverance from the present evil of crucifixion. What is more, for the people of God, death is a deliverance from future evil. Commentators suggest that this text was particularly a prophecy that was fulfilled in the life of King Josiah. During his reign, as a result of the Reformation that he spearheaded, people were repairing the temple, and they found the book of the law there. And in that book of the law, Josiah read and wept and trembled and repented when he learned that God's punishment was coming on the great sin of Judah. And this is what God says to him in Second Chronicles 34, 28. Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. Even as those who have experienced and know God's saving grace, Christians still, still sin. Sometimes we sin frequently. Sometimes we sin deeply. 
Second by second, we fail to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. How much more would the holiest person sin if his life was prolonged? But death brings an end to sin, the sin we would have committed had we lived, humanly speaking. And what happens to the bodies of the righteous after they die? We see that in the middle of verse 2. They shall rest in their beds. What a beautiful picture of death for Christians. God has made our bodies, yours and mine. And being embodied is part of our person, part of what it means for us to exist as human beings. We are not just souls trapped in bodies, but we are human beings composed of a body and a soul. And God made both of them, and he cares for both body and soul in life and also in death. For believers who die, God compares the body in the grave to the way that we rest in our beds. Why should you be afraid of death in the grave? Christian, your Savior has gone through death before you. His body rested in a grave for three days, but he rose again. And if you are in Christ by faith, he's turned the grave from the entrance to hell as we deserve that it should be into a bed for your body. And since your Savior rose, you also will rise from the dead if you die before Christ returns. What a text of gospel hope this is. And Paul beautifully expands on this thought in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. What a way to live, knowing God's righteousness by faith in Christ and knowing the fulfillment of his covenant promise for Jesus' sake. And what a way to die, to sleep in Jesus. But what does the text say of the souls of such people? It says two things. We find both of them in verse 2, at the beginning and then the end. First, at the beginning of the verse, we read, He shall enter into peace. Well, what are we to make of this? A person needs to be conscious in order to experience peace. The dead body rests, but because it's dead, it has no sense of peace. It is impossible for it to have such a thing. Well, for those who are in Christ, in their souls, in the new heavens and new earth, we will know global peace. There will be no more, no more war, no more perishing in war, as people did in Israel, and as people are perishing in Israel today. What's more, there would be no interpersonal conflict, no self-centered thinking, no hatred, no envy or jealousy or desire to promote oneself at the expense of others. What is more, there would be no conflict within the person, the tension between how I act and what I know I ought to do. For there is peace. Best of all, there is peace with God through Jesus Christ. Everlasting communion between the souls of God's people and their Lord. There will be perfect, sinless worship. No sin to interrupt our sense of peace, as happens here and now. This will not be a time of lethargy or nirvana, as false religions teach. We will still exist as individuals, and we will have unending joy and energy to serve God 
It is life to the fullest, unbounded joy in God's service. For we shall enter into peace. And notice what we have in the rest of verse 2. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. If you're confused by that, I empathize with you. This text was issued to me as a practice preaching text at seminary, and one of my instructors preached it uh, in the same church I was a member of prior to my preaching it, and that was a pressure-packed situation. And as a result, I misinterpreted the text, but I hope I won't do that now, because I, I've learned that what, what's going on here is as their bodies rest in their graves, just as a person rests in his bed, believers are living upright lives at the same time. And we're right to ask, how can this be? And it can only be the case if verse 2 begins with the soul, which enters into peace, and then moves to the body, which rests in the grave, and then moves back to the soul, each one walking in his uprightness. Upon first reading, or upon first hearing that, this might seem awkward, but this is a reflection of what the Hebrew does. That walking in uprightness is happening at the same time as resting in bed. Not only will heaven be a place of perfect peace, but it will be a place of holiness. Uprightness is similar in its meaning to righteousness. So walking in uprightness means life that measures up to God's law. I still remember how encouraged I was when I heard a brother say some years ago how he was longing for heaven, where he wouldn't sin, where he wouldn't struggle with sin anymore. That's a, a negative way of describing the positive truth of walking in uprightness, living for God's glory with no sin to mar your life, living for the holiness that you long for on earth. And here's another place for self-examination, congregation. Only those who long to live uprightly now will live uprightly hereafter. Those who long for holiness and who strive for holiness as they depend on God's grace, this text is about them. Yes, Christians fall. We backslide. But sin isn't natural for Christians. God lifts us up. He takes us out of our sin. He gives us more and more power to strive for holiness. And so you must know that if you would live in evil, more like the devil now, and there are evil and devilish things in your heart and in your mind, and you encourage those thoughts, and if you don't change, and if God doesn't change you, you will not like, you will not live like a saint after you die. You will go to live with the devil forever. Which is true of you, dear ones? Is God at work in your heart? Do you want to live a holy life for his glory? Or are you living for yourself, focusing on this world, dominated by sin and evil? We've considered why we should rejoice for the dead who die in the Lord. And secondly, and much more briefly, I ask you to consider with me that we should mourn for the living. And I'll read verse 1 of the text again. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. The righteous are dying, and the wicked survive them. They, they keep on living. 
And there are two broad reasons in the text why it's right for us to mourn for the wicked who live and not for the dead who die in the Lord. The first of these reasons is the response of the wicked to the death of the righteous. And secondly, the consequences of the, for the wicked upon the death of the righteous. So the first reason for mourning is that the way that the wicked respond to the death of the righteous. And so what happens when the righteous die? The text tells us no man takes it to heart. And here the, the Hebrew gives us the idea of setting this or establishing something in the heart. Perhaps the best way to, to make this clearer would be for you to think of a scientist examining a specimen of some kind under a microscope. He or she doesn't walk around or, or take that all, take the microscope and the specimen for a bike ride while he or she is doing the work. There has to be proper lighting. This needs the microscope and the specimen under the slide needs to be in a stationary position, in a safe position. And so the idea here is that death, like that specimen, the death of the righteous needs to be placed before the mind's eye, the soul's imagination for examination. And so what's happening on the part of the wicked is there is a failure to consider, to ponder, and to think about the death of the righteous. What a wicked thing sin is. Through death, God calls all people to prepare to stand before him, to seek salvation with him. But sin has so impacted the minds of people that they don't follow God's logic. They don't make the connections that they should. It's possible to react in two ways to the reality of the death of the righteous. And that is in the way of, the first is in the way of rebellion to God's message. There are people who would rather sin and enjoy their sin and be blatant about their sin and who don't want to think about death. They think other people will die, but not them. And then there's the, the path of indifference, not living in open rebellion, perhaps even attending church, not living in open sin. But could it be that there's anyone here who has not turned from your sin to seek the Lord and you don't have a righteous standing before God? Friend, are you responding in one of these two ways, rebellion or indifference? Not only does God speak through the preaching of his word, but he's also spoken with unmistakable clarity to us through the deaths of three of his people. He says, life is short. Death is certain. The afterlife is eternal. Prepare. We should mourn for the wicked who continue to live because of the way that they respond to the death of the righteous. But we should also mourn because of the consequences that the death of the righteous has for such a person. And if you are such a person, the death of one righteous person means that there's one less such person to show you mercy in a world of cruel and merciless people. There's one less upright person in life and business. One less person who can be depended on, who will keep his promises, who will do what is right and fair. She will not take advantage of the wicked. And so there's a, a clear application for us as we live here and now. If your Christianity stops at your workplace door, 
and it doesn't characterize who you are and what you do, your faith doesn't have works, and it's dead being alone. Let none of us give the world cause to say that we were a hypocrite. We should mourn for the wicked when the righteous die, because one restraint of sin is taken away. What would you have done or not done because of what your mother or your father would have said or thought? Not only is the death of the righteous a way of escape from the evil influence of the wicked, but it's also a judgment on the wicked in that God is taking a restraint away. Not only is the preserving influence of a Christian taken away, but there's one less person to shine the gospel light in a dark world when the righteous perish, when God brings his children home. Since God gathers the righteous before judgment comes, the death of the righteous means that judgment is on the way. What a frightening thing this should be for you if you are yet an unbeliever. Through the death of the righteous, the God of this world, the God over all this world shouts, Judgment! is coming, perhaps someone says. What a gloomy, depressing passage. I don't like it. Why should I listen to it? Well, here's an answer. Death is unavoidable. It will happen. Or you will pass from this life when Jesus returns. Solomon, the inspired author of Ecclesiastes, was moved to make the following comments about life and death in Ecclesiastes 7, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. He's not saying feasting is wrong, dear ones. I know this comes in the context of thanksgiving. There's a time for that, to rejoice in God's good gifts and to be thankful to him and to enjoy a meal together. But he does say that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. God wants us to think about the reality of death so that we would prepare not just physically for our loved ones that we leave behind, but also spiritually. We live in a day when people choose assisted death. They ask doctors and nurses to end their lives. Approximately 10,000 people did so last year in this country. And the numbers are increasing. And the criteria are loosening. Few people who request, requested help in ending their lives and were pressured to do so, were discovered, and their requests were denied. How sad it is that people should choose to end their lives, and at the same time, the government would simultaneously take such stringent measures to prevent people from getting sick and infecting others and dying. But that such a government would still legalize self-murder if a person desires it, and the Lord will hold them accountable for this wickedness. But what are we to do as we think of our own lives and the certainty of death if Jesus doesn't return soon without in any way minimizing the difficulty and the suffering that sometimes attend death? Assisted death, medical assistance in dying, is not 
the way of Jesus and those who profess to follow him. God says to you through me, do yourself no harm. The time of your and my death is in God's decision. He knows what he's doing, and it is our role to be patient, to trust in him, and to glorify him as we suffer, and we look forward to being with him in glory. To the person who says, talk of death is gloomy, and warnings of judgment are unpleasant, the end of the wicked is avoidable. Judgment is certain outside of Christ, but heaven is certain for all who flee to him for refuge. Then there will be the time when God takes you from this life and gathers you, and your body will rest in its grave like a bed, and your soul will enter into peace, and you will walk in uprightness, spared from evil, where you will experience everlasting goodness and amazing joy that is so much better than the best day in this world. And at the end of time, at Christ's return, your body will rise from its grave just as you rise from your bed. Your body will be united with its soul, with your soul in the new heavens and the new earth. And so you shall ever be with the Lord. Oh, how you should be jealous if you are outside of Christ. God's best for his people is so much better than the best that you can only imagine now. And it can be yours too. The righteous perishes. And you will take it to heart, won't you? Men of the covenant are taken away. You will consider that the righteous is taken away from evil, won't you? Oh, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sin, so that when you die, our text will be true of you. You shall enter into peace. We shall rest in our beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, what an incentive this text gives us to live well. Righteous people don't identify themselves as such, but they do care about keeping God's law for his glory and for gospel witness. Will others identify us as righteous based on the way that we sought to live? Will you take heart from the words of our text, timid one? Are you afraid of death? It is understandable, but this fear can and should be conquered. God will take care of your body when you die. Your soul will go to be with the Lord just after you breathe your last. And God will unite your body and soul at the end of time. Why then should you be afraid? In view of what we have learned about death, what reason to live well, and what reason to die well, looking to Jesus all the while. Comfort one another with these words. Comfort a brother or sister in need with these words. Amen.